Flaps Extended. Well, it's time for another Celebrity Pilot on the Flaps podcast, and it, we're all about firsts on Celebrity Pilots, and we've never had a world-famous million-selling author before, but we have now, and we've never actually been to a Celebrity Pilot's house before, but we are now as well, and we've got tea, and we've got biscuits, and we've met the dogs, and we've got the cat here as well, and... Frederick Forsyth. Hello to you. And, and thank you for having us in your lovely house. It's, and, and thanks for the hospitality so far. Okay. Obviously a world-famous author. We'll, uh, we'll come on to that in a moment in the new book. Um, but people may not know that you were something of an aviator and a, a pretty good one back in the day. Well, it's about, I don't know about quality. Um, yes, I, I did fly for the Air Force, um, but a long time ago, 50 years ago. In the days when we had to do a thing called National Service, was long, long abandoned, but we did then. And I was one of the very few who actually wanted to do national service. Everybody else was trying to get out of it. <laughs> I wanted to, to uh, go and do national service because I was absolutely obsessed with flying. So did you, all you, I wanted to do. Did you get to choose what force you went to do your national service for? Oh, yeah. You, you got to, um, well, let me put it this way. The, the, the Navy reckoned that they had first choice. Uh, but I think they had more or less ended their national service. Then came the Air Force. And if, you've, if you couldn't get into... Uh, the, the Navy or the Air Force, if they were your choices, then the Army took you. It had to. So um, the, the, the best thing, if you wanted to get what to do what you wanted to do, was to volunteer rather than wait to be um, sort of impressed. So I volunteered for the Air Force, and um, so I got it. And, and was it always a given that you'd be a flyer, or did no. you have to oh, do no, tests? No, no. or uh, thousand to one, roughly, yeah. is the odds. Um First, you had to go to um, a place called RAF Hornchurch, where they gave you a, well, it was a five-day residential uh, uh, examination. It was every kind of examination. It was a two days, uh, roughly, of medica- a medical exam, which was top to toe. I mean, every single part of your body. And um, I, I, I do recall that a lot of the guys who turned up thinking that they were going to become pilots or navigators um, were actually just sent home with um, flaws that they didn't know they had, like slightly, even slightly defective vision would do the trick, or slightly defective hearing, yeah. slightly uh, fallen arches. Why fallen arches? I don't know. <laughs> yeah, why in a plane? Why yes, indeed? We weren't going to march anywhere. But that <laughs> as long as you can it. use the rudder pedals. Well, they'll, I suppose. <laughs> yeah, that was uh, that was uh, you know a bit of a mystery. But sent home, they duly were. If there's anything wrong with them, so there was two days of that, and then. Uh, sort of uh, aptitude tests followed by initiative tests, then the fifth day of the interviews. Uh, and then you were sent back home again. Um, and you waited and waited. And in my case, fortunately, the little buff envelope arrived saying, you passed a report to RAF Cardington, um, which was in Kitty Out Airbase, um, where you went, where everybody went through Cardington. Mm. You went in a civilian and came out the other end three days later as a, a guy in blue with a very short haircut indeed. Um, they shaved you nearly to the scalp. Um, and then in my case, um, and I think, it was, I think there were 12 of us uh, in, in the 1,000 or 2,000 on the base at that time, 12 were destined to become pilots. And what did you learn but, on But it? even then, you, you know, you could, it was, I think, half got through to Wings Parade. What did you, um, what did you learn well, to you fly? Started, it started with three months um, cadet camp, and then you got the thinnest ring you've ever seen on your on your wrist meaning you're an acting pilot officer and then you went to base uh, basic flying school which in in my case was um, a plane called the provost uh, the, the hunting percival provost not the jet provost the piston provost 
nine months of that, um, followed by nine months uh, of Jet. And the Jets was what we all lusted for and to do, and they were um, vampires. Um, obviously now a museum piece, but in those days um, just retired from the frontline fighter role. And um, we did uh, nine months on vampires, and, and the, then the Wings Parade. The star of one of your short stories, which we'll, we'll, yeah, come, we'll come to later. in a moment. <laughs> later, later I did. I, I used the vampire as um, the star of uh, the shepherd. The shepherd, yeah. We'll talk about that in a moment. Now, were you one of the youngest airmen in the RAF, uh, Freddie? I was the youngest, actually, to get the wings, uh, because just a long and complicated story, which I won't go into now, but I wangled my way into the Air Force too young. I, I got in at 17 and a half because I, I just didn't want to wait anymore. But technically speaking, I shouldn't have been in until I was 18. So, okay, I got my wings at 19 and a half, where everyone else was 20 or plus, 20 plus. And it was, it was de- reckoned to be impossible to get them uh, under the age of 20. But because I had the six-month advantage, I got mine at 19 and a half. I, I was told later that's never been done. Did you enjoy flying? Yeah, Absolutely. Loved every minute of it. I'm, I'm both piston and jet. But I mean, you know, the, it, it, one, we, we had two guys um, who were killed, um, and that's a rather a bit of a wake up call, we mm. realised. Then we were all sort of, you know, by then, 18, 19, we realised that uh, these vampires weren't just a toy that a very kind queen had given us to drive around and <laughs> have some fun with. They were actually rather serious bits of metal, and they would kill you if you didn't take them. With some respect, so I think we grew up a little bit when we buried those two mates. Do you um? Do you remember? I mean, everyone remembers their first solo. What was yours like? Yeah, uh, I do remember very well. It was at workshop, Nottinghamshire, which was where where we were based. And uh, yeah, we obviously we had the twin seat um, T eleven vampire, and that was the 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 first because the 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 instructor just simply got out and uh, and and looked back in and just said, well, you know. (laughs) <laughs> they still do that now. Yeah, you're, you're, you're on your own. And, yeah, uh, they all do that. Still. Jumped, jumped off the wing onto the ground, and, and you you pulled the canopy down and um, waited until he was well, well clear, and then eased the controls forward and um, began to taxi back to the, back to takeoff point. Um, and then you, you obviously checked in with with uh, the tower and asked for permission to take off, permission granted. Um, line the nose up and then think, oh, Christ, <laughs> I really, there's no, no one here but me. <laughs> yeah. It's funny, everyone has the same story. Everyone it, it tells is. pretty much the same story about the first solo. But was it was it okay? Was it uneventful? Yeah, absolutely. Straight straight down the down the runway, uh, down the centre line, uh, wait till, you know, take off speed, lift the nose, and up she went. Um, standard circuit, you know, left wing, left wing, left wing again. Come back on for final approach. Uh, all the checks and balances and... Uh, check three greens and you know your undercarriages down and uh, and land the last thing. And was and, the uh, rules same in, in your day as it was in ours? You have to go and buy the drinks in the pub. No, no, because there, were, uh, <laughs> there would have been too many of us. <laughs> We'd have got very plastered if we all bought around. And I don't also I don't think we didn't have the money. I think the pay was uh, about twenty one pounds a week, uh, which was. I mean, considered very substantial in those days, but there was a bar bill to pay and a mess bill to pay, so it wasn't all all um, folding stuff. Was it quite? It must have been quite glamorous being an RAF flyer back then. Or it, well, I mean, it appears well, to be quite glamorous. We thought so, but of yeah. course, the, the, there were no wings on, on the blue uniform. So, um, and when you went off base, um, you were absolutely in civvies, um, and uh, that was it was a usually 
grey flannel trousers and sort of a tweed jacket of some kind, and mandatory a hat. You had to have a hat. So we chose mostly the, the, the flat cloth cap and looked com- like complete nerds. <laughs> <laughs> so the girls at the local dance hall didn't say, ooh, look at that, you know, a pilot. They just thought, well, who's he? <laughs> you must have used it in your chat-up lines, though, Freddie. Um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but then, but then, then, of course, they're, 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 it, was, it was a different kind of morality then. We had to take them home. Well, the idea was to take them home. And, um, and in most cases, their fathers were the fellas we kept awake on with our, <laughs> with our night flying. <laughs> they had no chance. They weren't terribly happy. So what was, what was your most uh, hair-raising moment? Oh, Lord. Um, I once, I once rather foolishly went between two towers of a, of a power generating station. Um, you know those big cooler, cooler towers, yeah, yeah, yeah. and um, I just looked down at them. I thought, yeah, I wonder what the gap, what gap between them is wide <laughs> enough. So, fortunately, it was. It's about so fifty feet or eighty feet wide, and we had a, 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 a twenty-one foot wingspan, something. So she went through quite quite neatly, but it was seriously illegal. And um, I just when I did, I just hoped nobody had noted the number on the. On the tail. Um, in fact, nobody, nobody either, either they, they didn't notice me go do it at all, or they didn't notice the number and couldn't report me. You so got away with it. Have you just grasped yourself up for the first time then? <laughs> well, it's a bit late to them to do anything about it now. I think, so. <laughs> you never lim- know. Statues of limitations. So how long were you in the RF for? Just the two years. I, um, that was the standard. You, you had your wings parade. And it took a full two years. I mean, your two years was normal national service anyway. You had you had uh, uh, you needed the full two years to, to do the course, so uh, it was in a sense a bit of a waste of taxpayers' money. But originally, when we went in, um, I think half of us were national servicemen, half of us were what they call direct commission, which means they were staying on for eight years minimum. Two of them were permanent commissions; they were going to stay on for twenty-two years. Um, but after after two years, in theory, we'd have left and then gone into the auxiliary air force and flown, become what they call weekend pilots, doing weekends and I think uh, three weeks a year, um, training at a local base. And, and the idea was that that, that we, you know, should it ever come to war, we'd then be fit to take on the MIGs of the Soviet Union, which is complete garbage because they had blown <laughs> us out of the sky. No way. So halfway through our course, um, the government discontinued national service. So how come you flying. think, I mean, as you love flying so much, could you, was there not an option to stay on in the RF? Oh, yeah, there was considerable pressure because they said, you know, you have cost the taxpayer a large amount of money to train you, will you stay on? And I said, well, basically I only want to do one thing and that's fly single seats. Um, and the single seat fighter then was the hunter. So um, I said, can I have a hunter squadron? And they said, no. Uh, hunters are for Cramwell men only. Mm. So I said, well, what would I be likely to be flying? And they said, a desk. <laughs> I said, mm, no. <laughs> no. So I, I had a, my second ambition was I wanted to be a foreign correspondent, which meant obviously leaving the Air Force and going into journalism, which I duly did. Um, and so that was, that was the end of my, uh, my Air Force time. Do you fly now? Did you carry it on at all as a civilian? No, no I had a I had a uh, private pilot's license before I went in the Air, the Air Force. I got that on flying Tiger Moths, and um, then I, the, in the Air Force uh, it, that, that obviously superseded. When I came out, I still had the PPL, but um, then I became a cub reporter in Norfolk. Uh, salary about three, I mean, amazing, three pounds a week. Um, I couldn't even subsist on it. My parents had to sub me a bit. 
But certainly a flying uh, was, was about three pounds an hour. Mm. Even then, I was about 35 or 40 pounds an hour, maybe more. But then three pounds an hour was out of the question. Um, so it lapsed. Then I went abroad. I was away for nearly 10 years. Um, then when I came back, the question was, if you want it back, um, you know, you're going to have to go through the whole the whole flying intuition again, mm. uh, flying tuition again. And the exams. And all the exams yeah. and all the tests and um, all the radio stuff. I wanted to fly Tigers, but um, which have no radio, of course. But then you had to do all the, all the radio um, tests and, and procedures and so on. Um, and I thought, well, it's a bit of a, bit of a bind. Um, so I never did. Do you miss it? Now and again, I look up at a clear blue sky and see a flying uh, guy going across it um, and think, yeah, I wish I was up there with him. But uh, the only time I was tempted was when, in the, when, when uh, I got you know, some, some money um, because of the books. And it became, became the, the day of the, the um, microlights. Microlights were introduced. Um, and I looked up, I saw one of these incredibly tiny little things going overhead. And I said to, to my, my wife, God, I'd love one of those. She said, right, you fly one of those. I'm going straight to see a solicitor. <laughs> <laughs> I said, oh, it's going to be that bad, is it? Yes, it is. Right. Yeah. So you're grounded, Freddie. Grounded, yeah. You mentioned national service. Do you think it should still exist today? No, I don't. It worked then, in a sense, because uh, those were still the days of the conscript army. Um, and yeah, most countries like France, for example, and, and Britain had a, some half a million young men at all, uh, at all times in uniform. And it was thought that if there was to be a war, it would be against the Soviet Union, that it would be because the Soviet Union invaded West Germany across the, uh, the border between East Germany and West Germany, and that it would be more or less conventional. I mean, conventional as in the Second World War. Lots and lots of soldiers um, with a bayonet fixed um, and um, and presumably, you know, um, shooting at each other at rather short range. But it became plain by, I think, the mid-50s that that wasn't going to be the shape of the war at all. It would be highly technical, uh, masses of tanks um, and, air, and air, air, air forces. Um, and that we were going to move, we, I think we were the first in Europe to do it, from the conscript army to the professional army. So you ended up leaving the RAF and going to become a reporter. And you, yeah. you, you reported on conflicts, didn't you? You ended up in uh, reporting the Biafra yes, conflict. Yes, that was, that was the end of, uh, I mean, I was 12 years, 19 to 31, uh, the age of 19 to 31. Um, I, went in, I went in at 19, having come out of the Air Force. Um, to a provincial newspaper in mm-hmm. Norfolk, did my three-year apprenticeship, then went to London, got a job with Reuters, uh, spent four years with Reuters, then switched from Reuters to the BBC, uh, did two and a half years with them, and then left them, um, uh, resigned, in fact, uh, under something of a cloud, uh, and went off and became a freelance for two years. So um, I actually came back to England at uh, the age of 31, after most of, most of the decade abroad. And um, well, I was, it was uh, Christmas 69. I was, I was actually skint, very well, very skint indeed. And so I thought I'd better do something. I sat down right at the day of the jackal. So that sort of changed things. <laughs> I can imagine as it, as it would. Did, did, you, did you ever think when you wrote that book that it would lead where it did? No, no. It was, I, first of all, I thought it would probably be a one-off. I didn't think I was going to be I mean, a career novelist. I mm. thought I'd just do one. 
Um, I was so naive about publishing and the way things work in publishing that I thought that you sold a manuscript as you sold a dozen eggs or something for a single sum. I didn't know about royalties. And I just needed something to sell to um, pay off my debts, put something in the bank, and then I wanted to go back to um, foreign correspondent. Day of the Jackal has just celebrated its 40th anniversary, hasn't it? Yeah. Um, how long did it take you to write it? It sold 10 million copies. I actually sat down on the 2nd of January, 1970, having obviously recovered from the hangover, <laughs> on the 1st of January. I couldn't, couldn't have written anything. <clears throat> I started writing on the 2nd, and I wrote in the book in 35 days. Really? Mm. Is that normal, to, t- to write a book that quickly? Well, apparently not. <laughs> but I didn't. But actually, I had nothing else to do. I, I hadn't even got a flat on my own. I was, I was in, a, in a mate's flat using the sofa as a bed. And um, so when they went to work days, I just sat at the desk. Well, actually, I was sat at the kitchen table and typed. I just typed all day and most of the evening until they came home. Uh, so if you, if you, if you type I'm 12 pages, I was doing 12 pages a day. Um, times 35, whatever, 360-ish pages, that was the book. And is he based on anyone, the jackal? No. No? No, he's, a, he's an invention. Um, there are other characters in the book, obviously, who are real, I mean, in the sense they really existed, yeah. and others who are based upon um, real characters, but uh, the jackal certainly was, was totally fictional. And was, was your foreign correspondency, was all that influenced to the jackal? It, the reason that I was able to be so quick, I think, was they didn't do an awful lot of research for The Day of the Jackal. People think I, I must have spent years researching it. Well, your books are very, but, usually, a lot of detail, isn't it? A lot of research. Well, that particular book. one, yes, they are now. I mean, they were then, but that particular one was based on the fact that I'd been in Paris um, for Reuters throughout 62 and 63, which was the, the period of the book. It was also the period when the OAS were genuinely trying to assassinate the president, Charles de Gaulle. And I'd been literally watching at a few feet range, so to speak, um, the, both Charles de Gaulle and his entourage of um, security men, watching them at work and realizing, well, I thought realizing that uh, the OAS were not going to succeed. And I thought in my, it just, I didn't tell, I didn't sort of, you know, sort of uh, you know, tell anybody, but it seemed to me that, that the OAS would not succeed in killing him. Uh, because every single one of them was known to the authorities. They, they, they were ex-army, ex-foreign legion, and therefore they were on file. And uh, the, 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 the counterintelligence people just had the measure of every single one of them. So as soon as they put their head above the parapet, they were picked up. And I thought they needed an outsider. And if they brought in an outsider with no track record, no face, no name, nothing, he might get through uh, and, and, and kill the president. Well, that was just an idea I had, and I, I mulled it over in my head for about seven years while well, I did other things. And then that particular spring of 1970, I thought, well, you know, let's write it just, just the way I think it would have been. And um, with a bit of imagination and a fair amount of memory of the years I spent in Paris, it just went straight onto the page with very little research. And there was nothing like it at the time, was there? I mean, I mean, obviously now, 40 years on, there's lots of books of that kind of mixing fact and fiction, but it was real, you know, you kind of invented a genre, didn't well, you? Well, I, d- I didn't realise I was doing it. I was told later that I had, that I'd broken all the rules. Um, and even my editor at Hutchinson said that he'd been obviously in, in and around books all his life. He was then middle-aged, late middle-aged. And he said, I've never known any book where the hero had no name. 
not even at the end, even of course, when, he, yeah. when he's in the coffin, they still don't <laughs> know who the hell he was. And he said, that's unusual. Yeah. And he said, I've never seen anyone mix real characters. Um, if, it's, if it's a real character, it's a documentary. And if it's a fiction, then you invent the president <clears> and, and you know, all the characters in it. And they said, the third thing I've never seen is such sort of almost obsessive attention to tiny details. Why do you do that? And I said, I don't know. I mean, that's the way a foreign correspondent would do it. You know, you, you, when, you're, when you're writing from abroad, you, you even tell your readers what the weather's like. It doesn't matter what the weather's like. <laughs> but you just tell them anyway. Yeah. So, um, you know, so how the police would, would have done this, how they would have done that. And he said, that's just part of being a foreign correspondent. And he said, well, yes, I suppose it's, it's the journalism. It reads like journalism. Yeah. And I think it still does. Reading the book today, any readers who, like me, are, are too young and weren't around in, 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 in the 60s for, yeah. for those kind of events, um, we can't appreciate that, that France, and it's from what you're saying, was that fragile that somebody could have assassinated the president of France and tried to change the history of, of France as it stood then? Well, it, it was. I mean, as far as the OAS was concerned, um, they took themselves extremely seriously. Uh, they weren't, you know, sort of um, like the IRA, starting off amateurs as terrorism. They were the cream of the cream of the French army. Um, the Foreign Legion particularly were obviously, you know, tough as hell. And uh, they were assisted by um, uh, sort of North African French civilians called the Pieds Noirs. Um, and uh, they, they, were, they were pretty dangerous people I mean, they were, they, because they were pros at what they did. And so for them, the assassination of de Gaulle was only the prelude to a coup d'etat. They wanted to take over the French government and therefore the Republic. And the French government took them seriously in that too because there were anti-aircraft guns mounted on the roof of the Arc de Triomphe in Paris pointing skywards uh, like a forest of aerials. They were actually uh, AA guns. And um, the, the, the fear was that there might be a parachute drop on Paris. If you can imagine that you know the the 16th Independent Paratroop Brigade from coming in from um, Colchester, wherever they're based now, and and dropping onto Westminster uh, to 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 shoot David Cameron and arrest the government. I mean that that was what it was like. Yeah. That was it sounds crazy now, but that's what they had in mind, and it was taken very seriously right across Europe. How did the book go down in France? <laughs> it's a strange story about that because the, the first reaction it, it it was indeed bought by the French. It was given by the the proprietor of um, of a very large agency to his wife, who ran a little tiny imprint, mainly concerned with philosophical and poetical works. So obviously his judgment was it was a very tiny circulation affair indeed for a book. When it came out, the French press were, as one might expect, pretty contemptuous because... Um, you know, the the attitude was, who does this Englishman think he is <laughs> writing about, you know, Le Grand Charles? After all, Charles de Gaulle only died in November 1970. This book came out in uh, June 71. So he was very freshly in their memory. And the idea that uh, a book concerning him, a fictional book to boot, would be written by an Anglais was, you know, they thought pretty derisive stuff. And it it stayed like that until a letter was uh, was sent actually to the publisher who, published, who, who put it in the newspapers uh, because that particular publisher owned several newspapers as well. And it just said that um, I, I've read this book and it strikes me as extremely accurate. It's exactly, um, it portrays uh, the man I knew 
as Charles de Gaulle, and it was signed uh, Andre Malraux. Now, he, Andre Malraux was a, an icon, a giant of um, French literature and had been culture minister for Charles de Gaulle. So suddenly it was transformed. Here, here was the, the endorsement from the ultimate French cultural icon, Andre Malraux, you know, the, the La Condition Humaine, the human conditions, almost, was, is, is um, you know, like the 20 Booker Prize winner saying it's terrific. <laughs> so suddenly it took off. And then, of course, it became a film. Film in 73. Yeah. And um, it, just, it just kept rolling. And it's been, I mean, obviously, paperback came after hardback. Um, and then it's, it just got stuck onto you know, all the airport paperback bookshelves. And um, 40 years later, people are still reading it, which is strange. To me, very strange. I think, Freddie, I'm right in saying you speak French, don't you? Yeah, I, I learned French before I went to France, when I was a schoolboy, and German and Spanish. Well, you speak, speak lots of languages. You've written about spies, assassins and security services. Got a military background A as military well. background, yeah. yes. Were you ever approached to work for MI5 or MI6? No. The, um, it's obviously, forgive my sayings, I've been asked before for obvious reasons because I was behind <laughs> the Iron Curtain a fair amount of the time. Uh, but basically, the, um, you know, the, the point about being a foreign correspondent, particularly in a dictatorship like East Germany, where I suppose it was, you're continually under surveillance. Uh, which makes you completely useless in that role because uh, obviously the, the whole point of the agent is supposed to pass unnoticed. Uh, <laughs> yes. And the foreign correspondent is, is stuck up there at the, at the press conference. In a dictatorship, he'll almost certainly be uh, his apartment monitored. Um, it'll be bugged um, and uh, he'll be tailed wherever he goes. So not really an attractive proposition. So, so not a spy, unless, of course, he's not telling us. And maybe, maybe you are a spy. Maybe even now you're a spy. This is a double bluff, well, Freddie. I'm only, I, all I could be spying on is, is, is the High Wycombe uh, Borough Council. <laughs> well, they've got secrets. They've got yeah, secrets. Yeah. Uh, so you weren't, a, you weren't a spy, but you were a bullfighter, weren't you? No. That's, oh, that's okay. Another, that's another canard. I don't know where it came from. Well, I know where it came from. It came from exaggeration. No, what happened basically was that I was, as a boy, I'd read a, a book called Death in the Afternoon. My Ernest Hemingway, which was all about yeah. bullfighting, and I became fascinated by it um, because I had time to kill between leaving school and going in the Air Force. My father said, you're not hanging around the house uh, unemployed. Um, what are you going to do? Um, so I said, well, I don't know. It happened that um, I had I'd had a scholarship at school, and part of the scholarship um, was, it was in modern languages, and part of the scholarship, I didn't realize it until I studied the text, so there's a fund um, to permit uh, holders of the scholarship to study abroad after they left school for one year. So I um, found myself a course in Spain, uh, in Malaga, um, in 1956, which was then a very, a very ordinary little mm. fishing village virtually. Mm. It was, that wasn't what you see today. And I went down there um, to, to, to sign on for this course. It gave me the opportunity of going to the bullring every day um, and there I discovered that there was a school, a sort of little, there was an old, an old matador who had a school of about six or eight youngsters um, whom he taught you know, the cape work. Yeah. So um, cape work it was. I signed on and we just taught, the, taught how to swing the cape and swirl it around the hips and let the bull go past here, the left side, the right side and so on. And this went on for about three months. And then, um, but they were never a live, a live bull. Live bulls out of the question. First of all, they're very expensive animals, <laughs> and um, no one's going to donate 
<laughs> liable to be ruined by uh, a bunch of um, teenage idiots. So that's one lie we can, we can lay to rest. You were never a bullfighter. No. And never a spy. He can't no. tell us. I can deny I can deny everything. We're going to leave here going, you know what? He was a spy, he was a spy and, and he was a bullfighter. Bull yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, this is obviously uh, for an aviation podcast, so we need to talk about, I mean, you've written many great books, many, many great books, but our favourite story is, of course, The Shepherd. The Shepherd, yeah. Because it's all about the guy flying the vampire home yeah. on Christmas Eve. Yeah. Um, it's a great story. It's a funny story, and well, funny, odd, funny, peculiar, because uh, it it only only uh, sort of stemmed from my wife, my then wife, um, saying to me, as a sort of, sort of challenge, uh, write me a ghost story. And the idea wasn't that it would be an aviation story, but it was, the challenge was to write a ghost. Without a, I'd never done a ghost. I'd done three books by then, but I'd never done a ghost story, and. Um, so I thought, well, ghost, ghost, ghost. You know, you think manor houses, clanking chains, um, guys walking around with no head or something, with a head <laughs> under their arm or something, all medieval. Um, but I thought, no, let's try and, and, and devise something more modern. What about the pilot, who a pilot who comes back from the dead to fly again? And that's, um, you know, where, where it all came from, the idea that this mosquito that rescues the pilot in the story um, is in fact um, being flown by a dead man. It's a great story. And it's, uh, <laughs> it's, it, it's I, love, I love it. I, I, I only read it a couple of weeks ago and it's a brilliant story. It's, uh, uh, it, it, it's very atmospheric. And again, your attention to detail, you can tell you've been an aviator because all the, all the descriptions are, are bang on. Oh, well, thank you. <laughs> Do you ever look at your uh, stacks of books in shops, your books piled up and think, I did that? Yes, it's uh, it, well. You know, not too many piled up because they're normally be that means <laughs> they would be sold. Be, yeah, haven't been sold. <laughs> um, but not. I haven't, thank God, ever seen them in in the remaindered basket yet. But yes, sometimes on the first day of publication, um, if you pass a window and it's sort of you know ceiling to floor and side to side, um, that book you think you know, whoa, no, that was me. Ah. Well, not so much nowadays because it's been a long time. But the first time when I was I stood outside Hatchards in Piccadilly and stared at the window full of jackals and uh, thought, oh, never mind that, you know, I did that. Um, but then, of course, being terribly British, one slinks away. <laughs> you know, just now saying, oi, oi, it's me. <laughs> did you worry after the success that you think, hang on, I've got to come up with another one now? Of course, that was the big, the big challenge because uh, a lot of people... Um, seem to have one good story to Well, they tell. say everyone's got a book in them, don't they? Everyone, perhaps. Uh, certainly a lot of people. But um, after a big one, if it comes out, it's like sells 5,000, 6,000. You might go on and say, I'll do another one um, and hope to do a little bit better than that. But um, after the jackal, it was, it was quite, you know, can you do anything else? And I said, well, I don't know. I imagine he didn't know. But um, and the challenge was go, go and write two Synopses for two, two uh, book number two and book number three. This was my ed, my ex editor, late editor talking, and um, so I went down to the left his office, went down to the pavement, and thought, "What the hell do I know about?" And I thought, "Well, I know about Germany because I've been based there as a foreign correspondent. And I know about merc white mercenaries in Africa because I've been with them in the Nigeria Biafra War." So those are two themes that I do know about. Um, so I wrote a, a synopsis, one page. Um, of hunting down a runaway Nazi and um, being with mercenaries in the jungles of West Africa. Um, 
took them back to the editor a week later, and he just flicked through them, and uh, he said, Nazis first, mercenaries second, and I want the Nazi one by the end of the year, meaning 71. Mm. So I had um, about 12 months to do it. And that was the Odessa file. And then 12 months after that, the Dogs of War. And after the third, I suppose I, I well, I'd, willy-nilly, I'd just become a professional novelist. So I thought, well, if I can do three, I can probably do four, five, six, and so on. And what are you up to now? About 16, I think. 16. The uh, Cobra is the latest, two one, thol- isn't it? Two anthologies of short stories and a novella um, and um, a non-fiction book. Um, but I think 16 novels. Just to go back to your short, uh, your short stories, is it different to write a short story like, um, like The Shepherd compared to a, a full epic, an opus like uh, Day of the Jackal? Oh, gosh, yes. I mean, obviously, you know, the, the, in their short story, there is probably one, just one theme, one story, no subplots. You just start at the beginning and go through to the end, or I do. Um, it's much shorter, obviously. Um, and it, technically, a short story can vary from sort of 10 pages to about 100. Beyond that, it's called a novella. I have done two or three hundred-page stories, and, and I think, I think uh, uh, The Shepherd was about 22 pages or something like that. No, you know, I read it very quickly, and I'm yeah. a slow reader. It's about 10,000 10, words. <laughs> <laughs> I rattled through that. It was a great book. And hasn't The Shepherd got a, a, a very famous fan as well? Well, um, actually, a chap who obviously we've all seen, I think, on screen is called John Travolta. It has another half to his life, which is that he is a passionate pilot. Mm. Um, he, so being rich enough, he, I think he has his own jumbo or something, his own Boeing anyway. He lives, doesn't he live on a, an airstrip? He's got, he basically he, parks he his, has a his, his right jet out, in his garage. Yeah, and just... a runway right outside his house, <laughs> yeah. And uh, garages or hangars, I suppose, for about yes. two or three large aircraft. He's got the license of a foreign airline captain and occasionally he flies to Europe at the controls of his own jet. But anyway, he, he, he got, I don't know how he got to read it, but anyway, he, he kindly sent me a little, little letter saying, I love the Jail. <laughs> I loved, um, not the Day of the Jail. I love the Shepherd. So it was very gratifying. And isn't it, 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 every Christmas Eve, isn't it on radio in Canada? Yeah. That's been a, a tradition that the CBC had for now about 30 years or so. Um, they, some, an actor reads it. I, think it's, I don't think it's a recording. I think an actor reads it every, every Christmas Eve or something. Um, because it is basically a Christmas story. It's, yeah. a, it's about Christmas. The theme is Christmas. Getting home for Christmas, isn't Getting it? Getting home for Christmas, yeah. Now, the Shepherd is a, is a story about aviation, but aviation does feature in your other books. Even in, in The Cobra, your most, your most recent book features an old buccaneer, one of those that flies in South Africa, actually features in it, doesn't it? Yeah. And yes, I, brought, I needed, I needed um, a, a warplane, and... Um, I just looked around at all the all the you know the, all the, the various warplanes that were available, um, and uh, and hit upon the Buccaneers. It had all the all the qualities I needed, um, and then I asked around where were there any Buccaneers still flying? The answer was yes, there were about three or six, I think, and they all fly out of Thunder City, which is Cape Town Airport, uh, and they're in private hands. So I got in touch with one of the owners, asked him if he'd mind if I used his. Air. He said no, he wouldn't mind at all. So I used it with his name too. He's the, in the book. He is the flyer. Oh, okay. So he's the actual guy in yeah. the in the, in the book. Yeah. It's about the cocaine trade, isn't it? I mean, how did you go about researching that? Because I mean, you've had experience of you know lots of other things. We've discussed that already. Yeah. But I'm guessing you're not a cocaine baron. So how did you find no. out about that? Uh, Again, well, it might be a bit like a spy. Maybe you are a cocaine baron. I don't no. know. But well, you're not going to admit to it, are you? But well, I never touched the stuff. You see. <laughs> um, but the, the, I just. 
because I, I read an awful lot of um, newspapers and magazines and things and watch television, documentaries and so on. Um, just about anything to do with current affairs. And I kept noticing a paragraph here, paragraph there, small piece there, article there about cocaine interceptions. Um, and even the Iron Duke, with, I think, uh, Prince, uh, Prince William on board, uh, made a massive intercept of cocaine in the Caribbean when it was out there. And I just thought, in my head, I said, there's an awful lot of this stuff about. So I, I made some basic inquiries, and they said, yeah, I'm, the authorities who are sort of combating cocaine said, yes, it's huge, it's vast, and does a huge amount of damage. It uh, destroys the lives of a lot of young people, and it comes in from Colombia to the tune of about 300 tonnes per year, uh, destination Europe, another 300 tonnes destination USA. Um, I said, well, what are you doing about it? <laughs> it's a horse laugh. Well, we're trying to stop it. So I thought, well, if, you know, if, if there is a war on, uh, the sub subterranean war on, uh, it might be a good story. So I began to investigate more and more, and there it was, all, this, uh, all these uh, viciously uh, violent cartels uh, behind the cocaine trade. Um, I'm In the book, I made it one, mm. but in fact, there's about 12 big cartels who, who manufacture cocaine and market it. Um, and uh, so that, that was how it, it, um, it sort of like pops, it just grew and grew on me. And then I went into what I call intensive research. I went out to Colombia and to Bogota and uh, Cartagena. But um, the only place that, you know, that was, that was I mean, even, even more hairy than that, I probably shouldn't have gone, but I did anyway, was uh, West Africa. There's, a, there's some failed states in West Africa mm. where there's a huge amount of, of trafficking going on. And I went to one of those. Because I was, I was going to say about the whole research process, you actually visited the places and spoke to the people. Yeah, but specifically, I mean, it's, in the, it's all in the book. In fact, it's almost autobiographical, mm. what's in the book, about um, Guinea-Bissau. Because in the, what, um, the, what the, 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 sort of the hero of the book did, Cal Dexter did, I did, um, which was to pretend to be a, a, a bird watcher. It was a cover story. I went in to have a look to just really spy on the cocaine barons. So are, are, you, are you a technical man, Freddie? Do you uh, have a mobile phone, a laptop, an iPad? No, I'm very untechnical. Um, I don't have a, a computer, uh, which means I don't send emails to the amazement of um, you know, everybody I know. Why, why won't you send me an email? As I said, because I haven't have a, a computer. Don't you want a computer? Nope. Well, what about research? I said, I've got someone else to do that for me. <laughs> <laughs> um, and uh, no, I don't have a mobile. Well, I have a mobile, actually, but it's in a drawer somewhere. What do you write on? Do you typewriter? I typewrite, yeah. Here's a question. They often say that writing is rewriting. So if you've got a typewriter, is it a case of first draft will do it, or do you literally feed the paper in and type, type the page after page after page? No, it, 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 it is actually a question, really, of the first draft is more or less, uh, with a bit of editing, what goes into the, page, into the book. I don't do rewrites. Those who say, you know, there are 15, 16, 17 rewrites. An entire, I mean, entire rewrites. I, don't, I couldn't do that. I'd actually die of boredom <laughs> halfway through the third. Uh, it would be over. So um, it, it, I, I, I prepare very, very meticulously indeed over months. And then when I write, it's, well, virtually the words are in my head already, in sequence, in paragraphs. And it's just a question of putting it down onto paper. So there's no creative work going on in the study at the time. It's just tapping away and tap, 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 page after page. I like still seeing black words on white paper rolling up at me um, rather than looking at a screen. And as for editing, um, get, getting out you know, typographical errors and things like that, well, 
I'm afraid there's always tipex. <laughs> well, the, the, the good thing about a typewriter, of course, is it never crashes. You never lose your work. You don't do have you to friend? reboot a typewriter, no. do you? No, 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 that is true. So you've just done the Cobra. That was that was your last book. Um, are you working on a new one, or are you, are you no. taking time off at the moment? No. I, well, norm, normally when I've just launched a book, I, I give myself a year off. I said so I'm not a compulsive writer. I never have been. Uh, so I actually have to drive myself to it, which others, you know, I can't so to speak, stay away from it. I'm the reverse, and. Um, so I have my, my year off. This is, I'm still in my year off. So basically just mulling over in my head, possible, possible very possible, vague ideas, one or two, that might be the theme, might be the theme of the next book, but nothing decided yet. Anything about aviation at all? Uh, I don't think it would be about aviation. No, I'm afraid not. If, 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 there, is, if there is one, um, it would be about the sea. Go back, back oh. to the, the sea again. Mm. And what about a couple of characters? One, one guy with red hair, one terribly handsome <laughs> chap who, you know, have, have an aviation <laughs> podcast. Maybe you could weave that in somewhere. <laughs> um, well, yes, that might even be possible. Leading character, Elliot, good name, good strong name. You know, <laughs> villain, Mark, that would be a good name. You can have those, Freddie. Okay, well, let's, let's see what we can do. I can't, I can't honestly see about you know, two guys with microphones. With Elliot's eyebrows, you could write a book called Day of the Squirrel or something. <laughs> Listen, Freddie, it's fantastic. Thank you ever so much for talking to us. Okay. And thank you for having us uh, in your home. Uh, it's an absolute pleasure to meet you and uh, hearing all your stories. Thank you very much. Our uh, celebrity pilot this month, Frederick Forsyth. Flaps Podcast is an award-winning aviation show. To find it online, go to flapspodcast.com. Flaps Podcast.